Hey gang, and welcome to another episode of the Just Get Started podcast. I'm your host, Brian Andreco, and thanks again for being a part of this journey. Wonderful to have you here for episode 76, where I sit down with the author of Ultra Learning, Scott Young. Go check out his website, scotthyoung.com, and uh, get all the details about him and some of the things he's doing, not just with the book, um, has a blog, he writes a lot of articles, does some th- different things in there as well. Um, he's got a newsletter he sends out that you guys might want to sign up for. So some different things I think could be beneficial. If you're in this phase of your life, I know I am, of, of just kind of this lifelong learning, really wanting to figure out ways not only to learn a lot, but how to learn more effectively, that's really what you're going to get out of this book. He combines a lot of these you know, stories that he's gone through you know, throughout his life of these feats, if you will, of ultra learning. And then kind of combine with the detailed science of actually, you know, how to learn anything effectively. So those two together have really created this great book. And I certainly recommend you guys go check it out. Um, So let's jump right into it. I think you guys will really enjoy this episode. There'll be a lot of great takeaways from it. Um, So without further ado, my chat today with Scott Young. Let's get it started. Hey, Scott, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining today. Oh, yeah, it's great to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to do a chat with you. I know we had uh, uh, near all had connected us and I'm obviously recently on the podcast. I want to get to your book and talk about that a little bit. Mm -hmm. And as we go down the path here, I I wanted to start as I generally do a kind of about the early years, if you will, um, because I'm fascinated by some of the stuff you're talking about, about, you know, the ultra learning and just learning in general. Mm -hmm. If you could start us off where, when did that was that curiosity always there, just kind of wanting to learn and, and figure out things? Or did that come? I know you started the blog at 18 and stuff, and we'll get into that. But yeah. when did you feel that was the the learning aspect of like actually having this curiosity? Had that been all a, a part of your life, or was there a certain time you remember it kicking in? So I don't think it happened all at once. I do think that I've always been interested in things and curious. So I think that's always been part of my personality. And I, so I think it's a little bit more like you have an opportunity. And so your kind of personal strengths and interests meet with the world in some way. And then you end up going down a rabbit hole that maybe you wouldn't have gone down if you hadn't had the right key experiences but the same person going through the same experiences might have responded differently. So for me, I think that there's definitely kind of a mix of both that I've always been interested in learning and and understanding the world. I think that that's sort of an important aspect of of being alive is, is, you know, being curious and, and understanding things. But then I think I also had a few key experiences that nudged me in this direction of not just being interested in learning things, but in the kind of unconventional, like, world, this ultra learning that I document in this book, this world of people who take on interesting projects that are very unusual, but also are about learning skills in ways that you wouldn't expect. And and often in less time or in, in, you know, without the same normal constraints. And so I think some of those experiences, I talk about a big one in the book about meeting Benny Lewis um, with language learning, that that was kind of one of these eye-opening moments for me that I think, you know, for some people, it might not have pushed them down that path. But for me, it was kind of like, wait, what? You can do this? And, and, and then that kind of nudged me into, you know, getting obsessed about it myself. Yeah. And I want to circle back uh, to Benny in, in a little bit. If I, if I could put a mm-hmm. pin in that for a second sure. on this idea of like kind of figuring this out and getting into this learning 
um, kind of mindset. It, can you give me a, just a, or the audience a, a little look into your upbringing? Like what, what, what was kind of, what was it about? Who, you know, how was your family? How was, were you pushed to like read and, and learn different stuff or was it more sports you know, related or what? You no, me- no. Well, my parents are definitely more on the kind of academic end, definitely than the athletic end. My parents are not, not athletic at all. And so sports was never a big thing in my family because my parents are not only bad at sports, but like not very, not very particularly interested in following like sports or that kind of thing. But uh, my parents were both school teachers, elementary school teachers. And so I think that right off the bat, you know, gives you that kind of focus on learning. Clearly they cared about learning. But at the same time, I didn't have the kind of like tiger mom upbringing where, you know, the parents are, you know, twisting and grinding and like you have to achieve academically. And I think in some ways that maybe also pushed me into this space because it really did come from from curiosity and just sort of following my own interests and not from kind of a top-down pressure. And I think a lot of us relate to learning in school from that top-down pressure, you know, whether that was a good thing for you, whether you really excelled and, you know, went to Harvard and became a doctor and et cetera, et cetera, or whether you rebelled against it or struggled against it. But I think that that pressure figures in a lot of our backgrounds when we think about learning. So for a lot of people, when you talk about learning, you know, they're thinking back to these horror stories of their their childhood or all these unpleasant experiences dealing with the education system. Whereas for me, I felt like I kind of had that space to explore because there was a lot of talk about why learning is important, but not from a, you know, okay, you better get to work and grind out and do well in school and this kind of thing. It was just, you know, just do your best and, <laughs> and study and, and do that kind of thing. I'm curious if we can just hang out for the, there for a second, because mm-hmm. actually learning, it, it has a broad umbrella to it, right? Yeah. And yeah. obviously, there, to what you're talking about, and, and this is where, the, you know, my big challenge sometimes with education, you know, I have a seven-year-old that's in, you know, second mm. grade, is, you know, you, you have the the learning what's considered, really, it's memorization, which a lot of times is, may not be as important today as it was, you know, 20, 30 years ago, 50 years ago, etc. Mm-hmm. But then there's also that you know, part of learning around experience, right? And you're creating experiences that are ultimately making you learn. Uh, Can you talk about that just a little bit? I mean, that might get us into our topics, obviously, with ultra learning down the road. But I'm curious your thoughts on that, the memorization versus uh, versus experiences, or if there's another avenue that I'm missing on, on the learning train. Well, my background, like, see, I think that a lot of our ideas about learning are shaped by a kind of an unusual learning environment. So I guess I'll put it this way. Most of us, when you say learning, you think school, right? And so because school is such a, you know, large experience in all of our lives, and it is one that is, you know, ostensibly about learning, we kind of form this picture that, oh, when people are talking about learning, they're talking about school or things that are like school. And I think that that's completely backwards, that that not only is learning mostly not taking place in school, and it's mostly not really a scholastic thing, but also that the model of learning that is taking place in school has some pretty significant deficits. And I think in many ways, it's not really what we should be thinking about when we think about learning. So, you know, the the classic example is what you just pointed out, where you're talking about memorization, because my feeling is even for the subjects that are taught in school, memorizing is probably the last thing that you should be thinking about doing with those subjects. Not to say that it's never important. I think there are subjects where having a certain amount of rote memory is essential to just 
being able to work with it. But even then, you usually acquire that rote memory through practice. So a good example of that would be like typing on a keyboard. Well, you need to memorize where the keys are. But the way you memorize it is through doing a lot of typing, basically, right? And so same with speaking a language. You need to memorize vocabulary words. But again, you're mostly memorizing it, ideally, at least, by actually speaking with people and communicating with people. So the way that we often teach things in school is to memorize a lot of things that don't have any use, that there's no actual application for it. And so you're just expected to do this rather unusual task of just loading up your information with knowledge that you can spit out. And I don't think that that's particularly useful. And I think what we really want to do when we're talking about learning is acquire skill and understanding. So skill is the ability to do things and understanding is to know how they work. And so I think that in some of cases, when we think about learning, we think about our experiences learning, we're actually talking about this activity that you know, it isn't really the best example. And what we should really be thinking about learning is the times when you got good at something through play or through practice or through exposure. And, and so really, when we're talking about learning through experience, I think that is the, that's the central example of learning and that what we do in school is often kind of the aberration or the, or the sort of the, you know, deformed uh, version of learning compared to what, you know, we're built to do. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I, and I and I think that's where, you know, we're seeing a lot of shifts in education and how they're, I mean, I even noticed this, we were talking about school specifically, like with my mm -hmm. son of like, just how they group kids differently and how they're doing these different exercises versus, I don't know how you all, but I'm 36 when yeah. I was back in school is like, you sit and you listen for like six straight hours and you have the same teacher and this and kind of the subjects for the most part. Um, and it was, to me, it was boring. But anyways, that was a whole nother, no, but even a whole nother more podcast than that, You know, like what, you, what you're saying is absolutely right, that we've been kind of in culture to believe that reading and sitting and listening and, and hearing a lecture is the primary way that you learn things, right? If you ask someone, okay, you want to learn this subject, what's the best way to learn it? Well, you have to take a class. And I think uh, what I'm trying to show in this book is that while it is often necessary to get some instruction in a skill, like you're not going to be able to do physics if you haven't ever been exposed to it at all. You're not going to just reinvent Newton's laws of motion on your own. But at the same time, what it actually means to be good at it and to have that deep understanding is is going to come through working with it, through practicing it. And if you look at, you know, the animal kingdom, because it's not only human beings that learn, animals have to learn to survive and stuff. They, they do it through play. And this is the kind of thing that we do when we're younger, very spontaneously, is that we play. And we tend to think of that as just sort of being a throwaway activity that, oh, play is just for fun. But it really is a learning activity that when we're playing as children, we're not only you know, learning how to manipulate things physically, which is a very important part of being a human being is, you know, being able to use all of your muscles and coordinate what you're doing. But then also the social world and all the other aspects of life you are playing, you are kind of enacting them and practicing those things. And so I think if we could view learning more as play and view how do we get that kind of learning into our everyday lives, I mean, it's going to have profound implications for things like how do you do your job? How do you be good at skills? If your primary idea is, well, I'm going to become good at this skill in my job by sitting and listening to someone giving a lecture, I mean, you're kind of going about it the wrong way. I don't want to say that lectures or books are, are bad, but if you view them as being the kind of the pillar on which learning is based, I think that, again, you're, you're going to go off on the wrong path.
Yeah, this gets into some stuff, and, and I'm really curious your thoughts on this as we go forward. You know, you know, I'm mm-hmm. I'm not going to go on too much of a tangent, but something that I'll actually I'll be talking about more in this podcast, and as we go into next year, is this this something I'm I'm kind of creating called the dozen months of discovery. It's something I tried to do two years ago, Ooh. and I just made excuses and didn't. But basically, <laughs> every month trying to learn something different or do something different for 30 mm-hmm. days. Um, so actually one of the, well, let's get into this now. I'm going to yeah, yeah. tangents because, because one of the things I'm going to do, I, I've, I've lined up the first three months. Um, and I'm taking suggestions for the other nine, nice, but nice. one of the, one of the, one of the things I'm going to do is I want to learn a language and okay, cool. yeah, I want to learn a language. I'm, I'm thinking Spanish probably just because of, you know, I think Good it's choice. probably one of the more well-known or used languages <laughs> besides English. Um, yeah. you may tell me differently. Um, but no, I agree. I think, uh, well, it depends on where you are and what your interests are. So don't, don't, but like I would say worldwide and especially in North America, Spanish is probably the best bang for your buck second language to learn. I think it's probably the easiest for the most utility. Um, I mean the European languages, but it's the most widely spoken, probably European language other than English. Uh, and it's certainly a lot easier to learn than Asian languages, but we can get into that later. <laughs> yeah. Well, so one of the things that fascinated me uh, about yeah. you when I was doing some research is that you learn language like, I think it's something you share the story, but you learn like four languages in a year or something like that. <laughs> can, yeah. you, can you talk yeah. through that adventure a little bit? Sure, sure. So this was a project I did with a friend, Vat Jaswal, and we went to four countries, Spain, Brazil, China, and South Korea, to learn four languages, Spanish, Portuguese, Mandarin, Chinese, and Korean. And the idea of the trip was that when we landed in each country, we were going to try as much as possible not to speak in English with each other or with anyone that we would meet. So we we had a, a rule we called the no English rule, which basically meant that you know, we landed in Valencia, Spain, and from the moment we got off the plane for 90 days, we basically spoke no English. And the outcome of that was that we ended up learning Spanish, I would say, for the three-month period fairly well. I mean, obviously, this is subject to interpretation. I've got videos of us unscripted speaking, so you can definitely look in and check for yourself of whether you think that it was impressive. But um, what we, we did a lot, and we were able to make friends and socialize and even go on dates and do stuff like that. And I think that for a lot of people who have maybe spent years learning Spanish in, let's say, high school or maybe even in college, and you know maybe they can do something very simple or maybe they can't do anything at all, the idea that you could like fully live and communicate with a a language after, you know, really even less than 90 days, because we were achieving these results within that period of time, not just at the end, um, I think is, is kind of surprising to people. And I think that obviously, you know, no English entirely for 90 days is fairly extreme, but there's a lot of things that you could do that I think you could adapt to that to get a, a little bit maybe more modest results and still you know get something you're quite proud of where you can now speak another language. And so I think that's one of the examples of skills where you know a lot of people would say, okay, I'd like to learn another language. I'd like to be able to paint or play guitar or program or do these kinds of things. And then it never happens because they don't know the right way to go about it and they don't invest energy in the right types of activities to really de- develop that proficiency. Yeah. And, and again, I could speak to that because like I said, I tried to start this thing like two years ago and I, I got a little mm-hmm. bit into it and then I 
kind of like crashed and burned basically. Cause I, I think to your point there, there were things I was picking like random things that I kind of were interested in, yeah. but not exactly. And now I'm going back and Hey, what is kind of leading toward my North star? And, and I'm picking certain things that could be impactful to my life that I actually do care about and could help. So yeah, to your point, I think you have to have some passion there, some motivation that's only going to help you, you know, progress forward, I guess, with it. And when did you have that learning? Because, and I think it was one of the videos I watched online with you is, when did you have that learning that that was the right way to do it? Where you just yeah. immersed yourself and didn't well, speak any I made English. mistakes, I, right? Like, so I did it the wrong way, which is how you find it. So I'm hoping that people are listening to this now. And I mean, you're planning on doing a language learning experiment. I'm hoping that the benefit of this conversation is that you can learn from my mistakes and not do it the wrong way first. So you could just start off doing it the right way. Um, however, I've talked to a lot of people and I think, uh, I don't know, the wrong way has a lot of appeal to people. So it's, it's hard to persuade people if they haven't personally experienced, oh yeah, this is why this doesn't work. So my first experience doing it the wrong way, and I, I don't want to say that I was a complete failure, but definitely not nearly as um, dramatic a success as, as, as when I did it uh, with my friend the, the other times, um, was when I was in university, I went on a year-long exchange in France. And I wanted to learn French. And I thought, you know, like most people, I'm going to be able to live abroad. So I should be able to learn the language. And a funny thing happened was, uh, so this was this was in university. And we had like a cohort of people that were coming back from exchange when we were going on exchange. And we had like this little meet and greet. So you can meet the people who had already been on exchange. And so I was already keen to learn French and learn another language. And so I was asking people, you know, did you learn the language? You went away for a semester or for a whole year. Did you learn the language at all? And aside from the exception was people who had, um, excuse me, <clears throat> people who had uh, already studied it for a number of years. So if you had like, you know, done like four or five years of college level Spanish and then you went to Mexico, those people did often speak Spanish. But for the people who had not learned it before, which of which I was one of them, I had not, you know, I did not speak French. I did not study it in university. I'd studied a little bit in, in, um, in high school, but like, I don't remember anything. I couldn't do anything. And so I was thinking, you know, well, did they learn the language? And universally, the answer was no, that they didn't, which is kind of surprising because the stereotype is that, oh, you just go live in another country and then you'll learn this language. And it was only when I landed that I, that I realized what the mistake was. And the mistake is that when you don't speak a language and you go to the other country, what do you do? You make friends that speak the language, the only language that you can speak right? When you're speaking to people about anything important, which is, you know, most of the time uh, you speak in English. And when you meet friends and people, it's going to be other people who speak English, either locals who speak English or other expats or other travelers. And those form your social circle. And then later, if let's say you do really practice and you get to a point where you do want to try to start speaking the other language, it's kind of too late. You've already formed this social group and it's really hard to push out of that. And so um, it was actually in my trip in France that I met uh, Benny Lewis, who I mentioned kind of in the beginning, and Benny Lewis speaks 10 plus languages. And he had this website called Fluent in Three Months, which is a fairly, you know, bold title for a website. And I remember when I first found it, I was thinking like, oh, this is bullshit. There's no way you could learn a language to anything even approaching fluency in three months. So forget whether or not he actually achieved it, like even getting anything that's even close is, is impossible. And it was only after meeting him and realizing, oh, the method is different. I'm not doing what he's doing. 
that was when it really kind of tuned into me. And it really made me think that, you know, if you wanted to do it well, what really matters is not how much time you spend with the grammar book, not how many flashcards you do, but how much of your daily waking life is involved in genuine communication situations where you're actually using the language that you're trying to learn. So you're actually using the language you're trying to learn, not just like having mock conversations, but actually using it to get things done, to do the communication work of your life. That's how you learn the language. And so, I mean, for people listening now, and maybe for yourself, you might say to yourself, well, I can't go travel. I can't go to Spain or wherever. I, I can't, you know, I can't take three months off just to learn a new language. So I guess this has nothing to do with me. But really, there's lots of ways that you could apply this. You could do things like say, you know what, I have a roommate or a spouse. Let me say with them, okay, we're only going to speak in Spanish for the next, you know, 60 days when we're at home. Or, you know, you're going to find some tutor online and you're going to have conversations with that person. Or maybe you will do some prep and then you'll go on a vacation to Mexico for two weeks. And even though it's only two weeks, you're going to just do the no English rule for two weeks in Mexico. And I think these little things that you can do are actually really beneficial if you want to uh, learn a language. And, and we found that it wasn't just that it was more beneficial. It is actually easier because you you struggle less. You You just go on, you just... You're speaking four or five hours a day, but it's happening automatically. You're not really, you know, okay, I've got to have my lesson now and really putting in that effort in that way. Yeah, that's really good insight there. I'll definitely be taking that as I as I get into that journey as well as uh, mm -hmm. some others with the, with the challenge. <laughs> um, so can I take a big step back? Because yeah, I, sure. I, I want to get up and I want to talk about obviously writing the book. But before that, you had to do some other things probably before you got to the point of wanting to write a book or thinking you could. Why did you start a blog at 18? If, if I read that correctly online, is that, is that right? Can you actually. fact check me there? 17, actually. If uh, 17. Okay, sorry. Yeah. I <laughs> no, no. I, uh, yeah, I started it. Uh, I started, uh, I, yeah, I'm in February of 2006. And I guess I would have turned 18 uh, in August of that year. So I even had several months I was writing it before I was 18. Yeah, the, the blog was a really funny thing because I had actually, this was, so this is two years before I started the blog at 15, I had found this guy who was doing an online software business. And I remember being in high school and, you know, when you're in high school and you're kind of thinking like, oh, what am I going to do, you know, when I'm an adult, that kind of like, what kind of life do I want to have? What, what do I want to study in school and go into and this kind of thing? And I remember uncovering this guy who had his own business and it was just him. I think it was like a solopreneur type situation. And it was like, he just made things and then he sold them and he made money. And I remember like there was just like this instant light bulb moment of like, that is the coolest possible thing in the world. And I don't know what it was that appealed to me about it. Maybe it was the, it, it could have, it was partially the sort of autonomy that you just have complete flexibility. Like there's no boss, you just do whatever you want to do. But then also I really liked the kind of, there was something very real about it. I feel like I've always kind of resented times where someone gets a reward because they manage, you know, because it's like a popularity contest. And I think maybe coming from high school, I was sick of popularity contests. I was sick of the like, this person got this pat on the back or this reward because someone else liked him or this kind of like, I didn't like that. You know, I liked the kind of raw meritocracy of like, well, it either makes money or it doesn't. And there's no one there to like, you know, dispute that. That's just an objective fact. And so I remember really, really being interested in that, but also being quite aware that this was a weird thing <clears throat> that people weren't doing. So it wasn't like, oh, you go to school for being a solopreneur and then, and then you just get your entry level job and then you're done. Like 
it was that you had to succeed at something that most people are incapable of. Like most people are not capable of starting a successful business. And so I, I, that kind of started me down the path towards personal development and productivity and reading a lot of these books, because I kind of became aware that if I wanted to be successful at this, I would have to like up my game. Like I'd actually have to, you know, be good at these things that, you know, I wasn't good at. And, um, and then I worked on, I was sort of doing some stuff with software and like getting interested in that and not, not really making anything worthwhile to be honest, but, uh, but getting interested in that. And then I decided, I forget, there was a moment where I decided I wanted to make some kind of software and I was going to write these articles that were going to go along with it. And so starting a blog was purely because, oh, I have to write these articles, but I'm not good at writing. So maybe I'll write, I'll start this blog and then that way I can like practice it. So in some ways the blog started as a learning project to get good at writing and then it ended up being my actual career. Yeah. So in, in with the writing articles, like did you always think, or again, at the beginning, had you ever thought about like personal branding and like, Hey, I'm going to start a business with this or did that come later on? And and same with the book, I guess. Yeah. I think, no, for me, the kind of motivation was I wanted to have a business. Um, And so like, I know like the kind of way you're supposed to talk about blogging is that like, oh yeah, I was just doing it for fun. And then people were giving me lots of money. Whereas for me, it was very much that I wanted to have some kind of business. And um, I saw that some people were having success with blogging. So blogging was kind of one of the things that I was interested in doing. Um, you know, as I said, it wasn't the first thing that I did. The first thing I was thinking was software because that seemed to make more sense to me. But then the blog, actually, when I was doing blog writing, maybe because I, I couldn't write software, but the blog writing was getting a bit more traction. And so that was actually like, okay, you know, I'll keep writing articles. Um, and I mean, it's also sort of like, partly I think it's the benefit of being at that age where you don't have any other opportunities. So you know, you, you get like a few comments on a, on a blog article and it like, it's pretty good feedback, right? It's not, you know, whereas when you're, if you're, if you have a great lucrative job somewhere else, you kind of need to be doing a lot more uh, from your sort of side pursuit to consider it like a serious activity. Well, I think part of it too, that, and and I think this is when uh, folks look at, you know, kind of the overall like success of businesses, timing is such a big thing. And I mean, mm. would you agree when you started the blog, right? And and obviously, we you know, we know uh, we got connected yeah. with Nier and I also had like Neil Pastrich on the uh, podcast. I remember uh, Lauren Everts, the Skinny Confidential, same thing. They also, you know, kind of started that blog in the, the first decade of the 2000s, right? Or the, you know, the early part of this decade. So the timing was kind of right. Would you agree with blogging? Was um, I would say popular, timing right? defines the strategy. I, I don't know whether it's that, because people, I, you know, I've had this conversation with other people that they've said things like, oh, well, that was the time to start a blog. And they're, they're, they're not wrong in a way because, you know, to, to build a website, for instance, like getting a lot of traffic to your personal website, I feel like I really benefited from being in that era when I didn't have to compete with like the New York Times and, <clears throat> and like all these other big you know, basically media publications that at that time were not doing, you know, they weren't putting putting their full articles online for free to compete with, you know, random bloggers. So you were just competing against people who had personal websites. And so in some sense, it was a lot easier back then. But on the other sense, I feel like the market was also smaller. So blogging and reading blogs was a weird thing, right? And now... I mean, even though the word blog is kind of usually refers to something more niche, 
reading content online is how most people like most people are reading that they're not buying newspapers and magazines right they're mostly reading things because something someone shared it on facebook or twitter <clears throat> and so i think that this is you know what i've seen at least is that a lot of people have built huge followings quite recently but just in a very different way than i have so we're in the kind of the era of the platforms now and so you know it's not so much building a personal blog but it's having a really popular medium account or building a youtube channel or an instagram following or you know popular twitter account and so i think in some ways the timing of it did it kind of characterized how i was eventually able to make a success of it but I don't think it's true that, you know, it was necessarily easier back then. Because, again, the idea that I would also challenge is just that nowadays it's sort of commonly accepted that you can be an online personality of sorts and make a living doing that. Like, you know, Instagram influencers and YouTubers and various people are like, people kind of commonly accept that that's something that people actually do and make money with. Whereas when we were talking about it back in like 2006 or, or earlier, the idea that you could make money online with this kind of thing was just like, oh, well, that's just a pipe dream. Like that, that doesn't actually exist. No one actually does that. And even the people who were the top, like I remember uh, Darren Rouse, who was uh, for pro blogger would like blog his, his annual income or something. Like he was one of the few people doing this. And he was one of the, he had probably one of the top, uh, probably one of the top hundred blogs in the world. If, if not higher than that, maybe top 50, and uh and i think he was posting like low six figures i mean can you imagine like top 50 website for you know a major like reading category and that the income of the website is like not enough to support more than one person i mean that's ridiculous right so i think in some ways it's become a lot easier but of course there's more competition so i think the bar has been raised in terms of like what what you have to write at what caliber of content you have to produce in order to get noticed certainly is is harder now than it was in 2006 i think the advantage i have right now is that because you know because i've been writing for so long my website has kind of deep roots so google will still send me a certain amount of traffic that if i started this blog over today they would not send me because you know, because I had articles that have just been around so long that they've developed that kind of um, footprint to get uh, traction, whereas the only new things that are getting traction now are on bigger platforms. But on the reverse side, there are bigger platforms that, you know, you can get your information through social shares and you can build a following if people like your work through those channels, which just weren't available back uh, back in those days. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so let's talk a little bit about, I, I want to get into the book because mm -hmm. obviously this is like a culmination, right? Obviously all this learning, if you will, lack of a better phrase, right? All the learning yeah. has led you to produce ultra learning, right? So mm -hmm. talk me through the genesis of the book. When did the inception come in your mind? How long was the process going through there? Well, so this book is like, I, I've been wanting to write a book about learning like this for maybe a decade. <laughs> so this book has kind of been my life for the last 10 years. So it's not even like, you know, the typical author gets an idea and then decides to spend like a year or two really researching and writing and then they put it together. And of course, that was the tail end of the project for me. But, you know, this this book has been kind of about this idea of taking on kind of intensive learning projects and really rethinking the process of learning this has been you know the only really thing that i've been focused on for the last uh for the last decade or so and as i said it really started with this this conversation with benny lewis or this in initiation to this idea that you know in the case of language learning that there was 
that there were people out there who are really challenging the status quo in terms of how far can you push this if you are really trying to be as effective as possible. And this sort of appealed to me as well. I'd been writing about student-related topics, and of course, studying was one of them at the time on my blog. And so I was interested in learning from that perspective. But I think the idea of not just learning to get grades in school, but like how do you acquire meaningful skills when you don't have to have all the constraints that a normal school has? I think that was a really interesting question for me. And so that led to doing projects with the MIT Challenge and of course the Year Without English that we already talked about. And I've, I've gotten the chance over the years to meet so many fantastic people who just have incredible stories of building businesses and transitioning to new careers and becoming really good at things that most people would you know, expect to be extremely difficult and doing it in ways that you know, are either faster or for less cost or, or ways that are otherwise quite unconventional. And so I, you know, writing this book for me was to try to synthesize, yeah, basically that last decade of my life and, and many of these other people's experiences into kind of a handbook so that, you know, those other people could maybe have their Benny Lewis moment where they meet someone or hear about a story where they're like, oh, I didn't know you could do it that way and start to, you know, get the gears thinking about ways they could change how they learn or approach the projects in their own life. Talk me through the just the writing process in general mm -hmm. and obviously yeah. going to publisher because I'm curious about that as well. I've, I've had a mixture on this of folks that have self-published, folks that have gotten a publisher. Can you talk through that um, a, a little bit? Sure. Yeah. So I, I went through a publisher. Um, I've, I've self-published books before, so I've written kind of four ebooks um, that uh, actually are published in China. So technically they're published books, but not in North America here. And I I was working on those. And so I have some experience with self-publishing. In fact, that's most of my experience. And the reason I think to go with a traditional publisher, especially for a book like this, and I, I definitely can attest to that, is that um, condensing the ideas in a book and putting them through a publisher does give you a bit better reach. So I think the reason to go with a traditional publisher is if you want to have better distribution, if you're okay sacrificing a bit of control, and 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 to be frank, uh, some, <laughs> to sacrifice some money as well. But uh, for me, that was sort of a goal because... I cared about this idea and I cared about getting it in front of as many people as possible. And so it made more sense to publish a book this way than try to publish a book that, you know, maybe I would make more money off of it, but far fewer people would would read or or hear about like like we're having on this podcast conversation right now. And who's this book for? Is there a certain audience you're trying to go after? So the audience I would say is twofold. So one, I wanted to target people who are the feeling that I wanted to target is people who feel kind of maybe stuck in their career. They'd like to level it up. They'd like to change it, like to transition it. They'd like to, you know, go from being mediocre to being a top performer. They'd like to actually have a job that they really, really like. And so that kind of was a major audience for me, which is not the normal audience for books about learning, which is typically kind of the student market. But I wanted to focus on those people because my conversations with them inevitably come to you know, to be able to be really good at your career often involves learning new skills, taking on new projects and tackling the kinds of things that I talk about in ultra learning. Um, and I wanted to give a practical guide for those people. And the other group of people that I wanted to tackle were just people who had that thing that they wanted to do, the thing that they wanted to learn to get good at, that skill they wanted to have that they just never did. So it could be like you were talking about when learning a language, it could be learning an instrument, it could be learning a new hobby. 
it could be whatever it was that's just been nagging on you that, you know, I really wanted to do that, but I've just never been successful at it. And I wanted to walk them through what would be required to be successful at it and and what is the approach that works really well so that hopefully some of those people can, you know, get inspired and take up a project to learn a new language or to learn programming or to, you know, learn something that they think is really interesting and that they care about, regardless of whether or not it's going to improve their professional life. What do you think's been the most challenging kind of part of this journey for you? Well, I think there were a lot of challenges in writing this book. And I think the biggest one was just how much this idea meant to me, you know? And so I think for me, I really, (laughs) I probably had an undue amount of anxiety and sweat over this book just because I knew that this was my one chance to kind of convey this idea and talk about it to other people. And so I really wanted to do my best. I didn't want to do it and then think, ah, three years later, ah, I should have, I should have written it this way or I should have done it that way. And so that's part of the reason I waited so long to to write about it. But also when I eventually did write about it, I really obsessed over all the details in the book, making sure that, you know, I carefully picked the stories and, and what research I would show and which practical tips and and tried to cut it out so that there wasn't any rambling or waste. And you know, that's not difficult to, that's not easy to do. It's not easy to, you know, be that kind of self-critical about your own work and still make progress. So I think that was probably the biggest difficulty were my own, my own goals and expectations for the book. And and what are some things, so I'm always curious about, you know, the future Mm -hmm. we're talking about, you know, just get started on this podcast and some of the things folks can do. What are you excited about the next six months, year, kind of in your own journey, maybe things that people, if they, they start following you online that they could expect? Yeah, so I'm always working on new projects. Um, I, I have uh, a new course that I'm sort of working on with Cal Newport right now, which I, I'm I'm really excited about. We'll have more announcements about that soon. And I do have a fairly big uh, project that I'm I'm working on, but I usually try to I I don't like to announce those too far ahead of time because I find they kind of you know they get adjusted, and I like to announce them when I actually uh, am working on them. So for those who are listening to right now, there I will be announcing something in uh, in early 2020. Awesome. I'll make sure I share that out online once you, we start doing that. So that'd be cool. Oh, thank um, you. What, uh, and where can everyone find you online? Where's the best way to connect with you? Yeah, so you can find me at uh, scotthyoung.com. That's S-C-O-T-T-H-Y-O-U-N-G.com. And uh, you can find links to my book there. If you prefer listening, uh, there's an audio book uh, on Audible and I narrate it so you can uh, listen to it there. And I also have many, many articles, including uh, podcast articles where I've, you know, read out some of my, the articles that I've written. And so, yeah, I highly recommend checking it out. Awesome, Scott. So I, I always like to end on this kind of as a, an open form, mm-hmm. if you will. You know, obviously, we've talked about a lot of great insight here, a lot of advice for folks. And, and obviously, yeah. as they read your book, they'll figure out some of that as well. But is there one piece of, you know, advice that you've always taken with you? Maybe it's something you learned recently or in the past, or maybe it's a quote you live by anything you'd share kind of as a lasting impression to the audience? Well, I don't know whether it's something that I've learned recently, but I would say that the piece of advice that I like to share the most is that I think if you reframe a lot of the challenges that you face in life as learning challenges, so you view starting a business as fundamentally a learning challenge, or you face, you know, changing your habits as a learning challenge, I think that that's a more productive mindset 
for approaching your problems than the way that people often do where they view problems as being about, let's say, hustle or about grit or about putting in lots and lots of effort. And I think the reason why is because it sort of tunes your mind to the wavelength of thinking of life and, and the world around you as being a comprehensible system, being something that if you understand it better, you can get the results that you want. And so I think for me, my kind of obsession about learning seems somewhat quixotic, like it seems somewhat unusual, but I really think that learning is in the center of all of our lives and we just don't realize it. And so I think if if someone who's listening to this conversation and made it to this point, that would be the advice I'd like to leave them with is if you can start thinking about the problems that you have in life as being learning challenges, I think you'll make a lot more progress with them. That's a great way to end on. This is awesome. Thank you so much for joining today. I'm, I really was appreciative to get a chance to uh, to meet you, obviously, since Nir connected us and, uh, and it was awesome mm -hmm. conversation. I certainly appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was great. Hey everyone, I hope you enjoyed that episode. And just one more quick thing before you run along on your day. If you did enjoy this podcast, if you've been enjoying this podcast, please head over to iTunes, leave me a review, give me a rating, let me know how I'm doing. It's going to help get this podcast out to more folks. It's going to give me an opportunity to know what I could do better. Uh, so I certainly appreciate you guys giving me that feedback. And if you want to check out more about the podcast, head over to the website, justgetstartedpodcast.com. As well as if you wanted to learn more about me, um, I even have my now page on my website, you know, kind of gives me the last three months really about things that have been going on in my life, um, as well as it houses my blog, the podcast, some other stuff that I'm doing as well. Head over to my website, brianondraco.com, B-R-I-A-N-O-N-D-R-A-K-O.com. I look forward to connecting with you guys further online. I hope you have a great day, a phenomenal week, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care.